Father God, we love you. And what we need more than anything else in the world, world right now is for you to, to open the eyes of our hearts to see your reality, to see your truth and your word, to see your faithfulness and your grace and providing it to us, Father God, and to see with the same eyes that David and other people throughout Scripture have seen your glory in your word. I pray that you would do that today. You'd remove every distraction. You'd remove me out of the way and as much as needed, Father, for your message to be proclaimed faithfully today, Father. We give you all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 19. We're going to be at Psalm 19 today. Uh, We've been, for the last few weeks, in a series, as Lindsay mentioned earlier, um, called See Him, and it is a series that is specifically looking at the significance of Scripture, the importance of seeing God in the Word of God, seeing God in the Bible. First week, we looked at the fact that all of Scripture, all of the, the message of the Bible is pointing to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's pointing to the gospel of Jesus. Everything in this book, from one page one to page whatever the page is at the end, is pointing to Jesus. And that's what we looked at in week one. And then in week two, we looked at um, the fact that, uh, that we answered the question really is whether or not we, do we need Scripture in our lives? Is Scripture just something that someone tells you at some point in time, they tell you the gospel, you, you sign a card, and, and then you're a Christian, and then you don't need it anymore. And we found that from Jesus, from Moses, from all of these people, that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Scripture is vital to the life of the Christian. And we are now in week three. And, and the question that I want to ask today, this is the, kind of the banner over our, our, our time together today, is what is the ultimate goal of reading the Bible? When you grab this book or when you open the app on your phone, what are you expecting to happen? Is it just a, a handful of stories, or is there something else that is going on? Why did God design us to be so reliant on a book with words in it? What's the purpose? What is he after in all of that? And so that's the question I want to look at today, and I want to go to Psalm 19 to answer it. So Psalm 19 was written by David. The, the section of Psalm 19 that, that uh, we're going to be looking at here. Uh, focuses on the Word of God, and he's going to shine a light, I believe, on the answer that we're, we're looking for. So let's start with verse 7, and we're going to read just through verse 11. We'll focus on these verses, and then we'll move around the, the Bible a little bit. So verse 7, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. 
in keeping them, there is great reward. So we have David here, and uh, he, uh, in this specific section, like I said, is talking about the Word of God. He's talking about, at his point in history, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the very beginning of our own Bible. And by using these words, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, David is encompassing really all the different dimensions of the Holy Scriptures. And then he's drilling down into them and looking at the very nature of why we have Scripture and the purpose, what God is accomplishing through that. And in the process of just really just seven verses or five verses here, he is really painting a panorama of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. And the way I'd like to engage this text is a little bit different than we normally uh, we normally read a text top to bottom. I want to look at the bottom and then work our way up. Um, so looking at verse 11 here, it's very important that we look at this verse first, I think, because our mind, the modern mind, tends to get this a little jumbled. Verse 11 says, Moreover, by them, by the word of God, by the rules of God, your servant is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is a clarifying sentence for us because um, it tells us that the first priority of the scriptures is actually not to warn us. That is a priority, but it's not the primary and main purpose of the scriptures. The reason I'm mentioning this is because a lot of people get hung up on um, that the purpose of Scripture is primarily to warn me not to do something wrong or primarily to to tell me what I need to do to obey, like a, a giant rule book. But it's not that. It's not a giant rule book. That's not what the Bible is. Now, to be sure, the Bible has warnings, many of them, and it has rules. But the word moreover here tells us that this is not the primary reason, but a secondary function of the Scripture. There is a primary purpose. And what David hammered on in the first few verses is going to shine light on that. In fact, the verse right above this, verse 10, vividly gives us a depiction of what God's primary purpose is. Look what David says. He says, Of God's rules, of God's word, more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now that is an amazing thing to say about a book. Think about what he's saying here. Gold. At David's time, this is really what it means to have the apex of wealth. Whatever you desire to have, you could purchase with gold. Gold is the height of material wealth. There isn't a more precious thing to have. Buy anything you want with it. For us, how this would relate, contextualize for us, is is really the question of uh, what material possession do you desire most? Is it a new house? Is it a car? Is it a spouse? Is it a child? Is it what is the most important thing materially that you can have? A family vacation? A 4K TV, what, what is that? And whatever that is for you, David is saying that the word of God is more to be desired than that. 
It is more to be desired than that. Gold for David cannot hold a candle to the joy of meeting with God in his word. In other words, there isn't an amount, there isn't an amount of, of money that you could pay him that would cause him to give up God's word. He's com- completely committed to this. This is how serious he is about this book. And he's not trying to impress us. This isn't a spiritual sort of game where he's trying to show off. He is being straight up. This book is really this valuable to David. Desiring gold or any materialistic thing in life more than the word of God for David was not on the table. That was not an option. And then he shifts gears and goes to honey. And here he says, he's got in mind at least with honey, good, rich food, which for us in Seattle, not something we're unfamiliar with. We know what good food tastes like. We've been blessed with a lot of really great food here. Good food is excellent. God knows this. He made it. He made our taste buds. He wants us to know the exquisiteness of good food. In fact, the Bible constantly presents, as it's doing here, as it did last week, food as an analogy for our pursuit of God. So God's not unaware of that. But why would David use honey in a passage like this? Well, for David, honey is the sweetest of all foods. There isn't anything else at that time that can be pulled naturally from the world that is more sweet than honey. For him, it was an unrivaled sweetness. It was a sweetness that could not be compared to, a taste that, that could be, he could get from a honeycomb, and it would be unparalleled to any other flavor of food that he had at that time. It goes beyond all other tastes. And so his usage here is very telling because he's effectively saying that honey which is at the apex of our culinary delight, pales in comparison to tasting the Word of God, to encountering God in His Word. If you remember last week, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's throughout the Scriptures, this idea that what we experience in the Word is a kind of tasting. And David is saying here that that tasting that is done through the Word is infinitely superior to every kind of great food that you could have in this world. And so in verse 10, what he's doing here is he's presenting the kind of delight and the kind of pleasure we should have when we open this book. This is not a superior Christian's perspective. This is David saying, this is why the book exists. This is how it exists. Our reading should lead to this kind of joy. And this is precisely the language we see when we go back to verses 7 through 9. (laughs) seven through nine or seven through eight, I should say, um, says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So David, like I said earlier, is These are all elements of the Word of God. These are all different aspects of the Word of God. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. All of these are describing the same book. All of these are describing Scripture, and they have one source here. It's the most common word in this this, uh, sentence. I guess it is a sentence with the last enemy colons. (laughs) Um, Lord. Their source is the Lord, the one true God. And so we have a series of these statements that present different aspects 
of the Word of God, and then with each of them a confession of its value and its purpose. For example, the law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, the law of the Lord is blameless. It has no fault in it whatsoever. It is perfect. And when it is received by the human soul, it revives the soul. So when God's perfect word is encountered by the human soul, the the response of the soul is something like resurrection from the dead. It is a reviving of that soul to life. And then he says, when the, the the testimony of the Lord is sure, it's true, so it can make simple people wise. God's testimony, he's saying here, God's word gives us wisdom, but it even goes further than that. It doesn't just educate us like a book, because you can get educated from any book. It makes simple people wise because of its certainty, because of its surety. And in making simple people wise, it transforms foolishness to wisdom. And then he says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So when David reads the precepts of God, he says that my heart soars with joy when I read this book. When I read your word, God, I have joy in my heart. There is something about the nature of God revealed in the scriptures that causes him to rejoice. And then finally, in these two verses, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, the purity of God's word removes the blindness of our eyes. It's a powerful statement of God's power through the scriptures to remove scales from our eyes, to see him rightly. Now, the first impulse we have when we see a a passage like this, first impulse I have when I read something like this, is to, to say maybe David is using metaphorical language to simply describe encouraging words in the Bible. Maybe the Bible is no different at the end of the day in in what he's describing here than a really large, say, like hallmark greeting card that gives you an encouraging message, tells you something to, 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 to get you happy, affirms something in you, gives you confidence, Maybe this is just a fancy way of David saying, basically, I was encouraged by some of the things you said, God. Thank you for being a great friend. Thank you for your positive uh, affirmation. And I think we would all disagree with that assessment and say it's wrong, but we may not know why it's wrong. It's not right at all, actually. And, And one of the reasons we would know this is the case is by reading the next verse in this series, verse 9. Because David, before telling us that God's word is, is more to be desired than gold, fine gold, is, is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, David says this in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now why? Would that line eliminate the possibility that that David's previous language in those verses 7 and 8 are just fancy words for being comforted and encouraged by God's uh, words in the same way that a greeting card would? I mean, does it really need, does this book really need to be supernatural? Can it just be a 
maybe a poetic, like it's encouragement is a poetic use of language that is encouraging. And the answer we said earlier is no. Verse 9 tells us that reading God's word is not superficial encouragement. It is, in fact, a powerful inbreaking of the reality of God into our lives. The focus of verse 9 is to remind us that we are not the center of the universe. God is. He says in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. In other words, God has always been. Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is God always. He's always been. He always will be. He is a fearfully awesome being. Never came into existence. Think about that for a moment. Never came into existence. Never had a beginning. And he will never, ever end. And what this means is that everything that exists apart from him, apart from God, absolute reality, should be filled with a holy kind of trepidation and fear, a a, a kind of constant recognition of the supremacy of his glory, his unrivaled glory, which is why David says the fear of the Lord is clean. It is a holy and clean response to the magnitude of greatness when you're talking about the author of this book. It is the right kind of response. And the second thing he says here, is that the rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. In other words, God is not a rule follower. He is a rule giver. He doesn't need to follow the standard. He is the standard. He's the standard of righteousness. All righteousness in the universe, all good doing in the universe, is only good or not in whether it conforms to his reality, to his goodness. That's the definition of righteousness. God doesn't conform to a standard outside himself. He is the standard. And so David is reminding us here the worth of God's word isn't some cute superficial kindness that is focused on us. The value of God's word is in him, the the person who provided all of these things. And the reason this is good news is because God isn't interested in our temporary joy. He isn't interested in us having ephemeral, temporary joy. He wants us to have permanent joy. He wants us to have perfect joy, and that kind of joy is only found in him. So here's the deal. If we read the Bible, if we as a people or individually read the Bible, and we miss the centrality of God and the centrality of his worth, it does not matter at the end of the day how happy it makes us feel. It doesn't. Or how encouraged we are because we've missed the glory of God and therefore we are setting our hopes on a temporary, superficial kind of happiness that's going to dissipate and eventually disappear. And this is not what David is describing in Psalm 19. David is describing a miracle. He is describing a supernatural event that has our souls come face to face with the glory of God, who he really is. And this happens through stories, songs, commandments, epistles, uh, 
biographies, all of them are designed for us to see him in and through their meaning. So when David reads the Torah and he encounters the beauty and glory of God through sentences and words and grammatical syntax on pages, it is not a natural event that's happening there. Reading is natural. But what is happening in his soul is a supernatural event. His heart is responding to the beauty of God with joy and ultimately worship. So it should be no wonder for us that he says, this book is worth more than gold. All the gold in the world, nothing. Pittance compared to the value of this book. This book is sweeter than honey. There's nothing you could give me on this earth that would taste better than tasting the glory of God in this book. And this is how, not just how David talks about God's word, This is how God's word is talked about throughout all of scripture, including what Jesus says of his very own words. So if we look at John 14, that's where we're going next, verse 21, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. John 14, 21 through 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that's an important distinction. I imagine Judas told John to put that in there. Make sure we got the same name, but this is, I don't want any confusion. Said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's told them that he's going away. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this scene is hours, just hours before Jesus is going to be crucified. He's spending some final moments with his disciples, giving them some last preparation for the trauma that they're about to endure in losing him in a very violent way. And he's made it clear to them, I'm not going to be with you much longer. Not like this. I will not be with you like this much longer. And yet... I'm going to manifest myself to you. I will manifest myself to those who love me, he says. Not to the world, but to those who love him. To those who keep his words. Those who love Jesus and hold on to his words, hold on to his commandments, like David in Psalm 19. Those are the ones who see Jesus. And this is critical to see. Keeping the word of Christ is seeing Jesus manifested. That's what he's saying here. Now, I don't want us to downgrade this. I think we have a tendency to downgrade this into some kind of earning or meriting action. He is not saying, obey my commandments and then you'll earn the opportunity for me to show you myself. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll want to meet with me. you want to see me. If you love me, you'll want to see me. You won't ignore my words. You will cherish them. You will desire them more than gold. 
and they will be sweeter to you than honey. The word keep here is tereo in the Greek, and what it means is to guard, to observe, to keep, to hold on to. It isn't simple obedience, though it does entail that. It is rooted in a kind of devotion to the words. It is a kind of desire to know Jesus, not just to obey him, not just to follow a bunch of rules, to know him and to cherish him and to adore him, just like we see in Psalm 19. This is what it means to keep him. And listen to how he says he'll manifest himself to us. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And this is amazing. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That is an incredible thing. Jesus is saying of himself and his father, we're going to make our home with you. It's not enough for you to see a glimpse of us. It's not enough for us just to pass on our way down the street. We will dwell with you always. For some of of us, this sounds way too good to be true. That God the Father and God the Son would come to us broken, sinful, oftentimes dishonoring him, unfaithful in so many ways, and that he would tell us, I love you, and I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to make my home with you always. It is a, a staggering thought because he is in that statement shedding light on a kind of intimacy that we can only experience with people that we live with. A kind of joy that is only experienced with people that we share and break bread with. And that's why Jesus places such a a massive emphasis on his words. Listen to what he says in John 15. Just a few verses to the right of this. After he's told his disciples about a variety of different things, he's about to go He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is why Jesus spoke. If you ever wondered why did Jesus teach, why did Jesus speak, why did Jesus communicate anything at all, his ministry was ultimately for this reason. Everything he said, everything he said, can be funneled into this category. The reason Jesus spoke is that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He desires worshipers. He desires people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. This is why we have his words written down in scripture. This is why we have the Bible. The God of the universe is inviting us into his own joy. And David saw this in Psalm 19. This was not obscured from him. He saw it in Psalm 19. He knew why scripture existed. There is a powerful joy, greater than any joy that you've ever experienced in this world. When we lay aside our ulterior motivations, we lay aside our skepticism, we lay aside our distractions, and we look into this book and we ask him to show up. And we embrace him as a treasure. When our eyes are enlightened, when our soul is revived, 
when our hearts rejoice, Jesus says, I did this so that your joy may be full. He's not interested in us having a second-rate joy or a joy with an expiration date. The joys in this world, though they are good, though they shouldn't be denied, have expiration dates. They're going to fail you one day. Every joy in this world will fail you one day except for one, the joy that is found in God through his word. This is the goal of the Bible. This is the question that we were asking earlier. What was the ultimate goal of the Bible? This is the ultimate purpose of reading the Bible so that we would see the unseeable with the eyes of our hearts and respond to it with joy. Worship him, trust him, believe in him, hold fast to him. That's what the Bible is after. Listen to 1 Peter 1.8. This is Peter talking to people just like us, people who've never seen Jesus face to face. And he says this, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, somehow you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The people talking to, uh, people Peter's talking to right now are no different than us, except for 2,000 years of history. They had never saw Jesus. They heard a message about him from a book and from an eyewitness account that became a book at some point, and they loved him, and they believed in him. And Peter says, they rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Their eyes, the eyes of their hearts, see him in the preaching of the word, in the proclamation of the gospel, and they respond with joy. They know it's true, and they know it's the source, the wellspring of joy in the universe. And so Peter, David, Jesus, they are fighting for us in these depictions to experience this joy. Jesus says, if you keep my word, if you keep my word, my Father and I will come to you, and we will make our home with you. That is the very definition of inexpressible joy filled with glory. So here's the question for today. <clears throat> Second question. Is this your experience when you open the Bible? When you open its pages, is it just to, to read a few words, maybe cross off uh, a, a, a day on your reading plan list? Reading plans aren't bad, but is that what it is? Or are you hungry for inexpressible joy? Are you seeking out joy that is filled with the glory of God, the very joy of meeting with Jesus and his Father, dwelling with them, of experiencing their love firsthand? This is not, these are not metaphorical. This is not an, an allegory. This is not fancy words. This is reality. He's describing an experience. He's not using flowery language. He's telling you of, like Peter and Jesus and David are telling us of the reality in God's word. And as I considered how I might illustrate this and put flesh and blood on it, because it's in an abstract, abstract space right now, the best I can do, and I hesitate on doing this, I don't like doing this, but the best I can do is to tell you how I came to taste and see the glory of God, and how I became addicted to this book because of what I saw in it. I don't 
like telling my story. I don't generally tell my story. I find my story to be a distraction most of the time, but I think it w- may serve you well here, God willing. I was born in a Christian home. I grew up in the church. I went to church most of my life, up to 16 and 17 years old, and uh, I was going there every week, three times a week. Read my Bible, very familiar with my Bible, very familiar with Sunday school, all of these things. I, 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 I walked down the aisle, said a prayer, signed a card many times. But when my grandfather died of cancer, and when a number of other things in my life started to go sideways, I made a beeline away from God, away from the church, and away from my family. And during that time, I aggressively ran from God. I didn't want anything to do with him. I became, through careful work, a militant atheist, very angry about Christianity, very, uh, I had all of these arguments developed for why it wasn't true, why this book was false, and um, the one thing you need to know, though, about me going through those stages is that I had never, when I read the Bible before, never had I read the Bible, experienced anything like the reality of who he is in his word. I'd read it many times. I knew the Bible. But what David described today, never tasted that, never experienced that. One day, well into my marriage to Rachel, um, after a, a series of events happened in my life where I began to doubt my doubts. It's the only way I know how to put it. Um, I took a Bible that I had, not this one, and I printed out one of my major issues with it, which was inconsistencies in the books. 66 books written by dozens of authors over the course of thousands of years, and I had issues with different things that weren't lining up for me. And this says this, this says this, and I didn't get it. So I printed them all out, all the contradictions from Genesis to Revelation out, sat them by, beside my Bible, and I read through each page. I went through the Bible from the front, the first verse, all the way to the end. And at some point, the list of contradictions disappeared. It was as though the emphasis that I had placed on them completely eroded, and they were gone. And I began to see something else in this book, in just reading words on a page. And asking God, if you're real, if you're real, show up. I shouldn't need to appeal to any other evidence. I want to see you if you're real. And over that time, I saw him being more real than anything else in my life. He became to me so real. I was so confident in his reality and who he was. In just reading a book. I wasn't even in the New Testament yet. And he had me. When he presses in on your heart, moves aside all of your barriers. I had unanswered questions. He was like, I don't care about those. I'm going for you. And he lays hold of you. You feel in that moment an unquestionable certainty in who he is. More than anything you have in your life. And that's not all you feel. There's something else. There's, there's, if that was it, we might be terrified. Because knowing that there is an infinite God 
who is going to justly judge everyone is a point of terror. But that's not the only thing I encountered in the word. There is something else. In me seeing him, I also saw the greatest news in the world. Reading a book, I knew for a fact that not only did he exist, but he loved me. And he loved me so much that he gave his son to die for me. After years of rebellion, years of hatred towards him, he loved me. And when I saw that fact, my heart soared with joy. Shook me to the core, and I've never been the same again. I've never been the same again. I've read this book every single day since I started. And I can't get enough of it. I love this book. It is inexpressible joy to me, a joy that is filled to the brim with glory. And my wife, so there's a, you can't see it here, but on this uh, podium, this uh, lectern, there's a, an engraving that says, for king and kingdom, Jeremiah 15, 16. My wife knows I love my Bible. My wife knows that I love it. She, she would even say, probably I have a problem. Um, but I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So, you know, there's no argument against that. But um, if this is not because I'm awesome or super spiritual. I am not at all any of those things. I just have seen him. And she wrote, had engraved on this, Jeremiah 15, 16. I want to read that for you. She knows who I am. And this is the passage that she selected. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah says, I found them. I found them. They've been hiding from me my entire life. I found them like a treasure. And I ate them, and when I ate them, they became to me a joy, an inexpressible joy filled with glory because I am called by your name. I belong to you, God. Therefore, when I read your words and keep them, my eyes are enlightened, my heart rejoices, and my soul is revived. There is nothing in the universe like the word of God, nothing. And this verse is not for me alone. It's not for Jeremiah alone or David alone. It is for everyone who possesses this book and trusts in God's word and what he said of himself. And so to really offer one final picture to illustrate this in closing, this point of inexpressible joy found in reading the word of God I want to look at one more passage that I think makes very clear God's self-revelation in his word on one hand and the profound joy of him dwelling with us, living with us, making his home with us on the other. It's Psalm 139. This psalm, again, written by David, it is focused from front to back on the greatness of God, the glory of God, how overwhelmingly awesome he is. And David says this in verse 17 and 18. Listen to his words. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, 
They are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. So David here is suddenly overwhelmed by the magnitude of the glory of God in this psalm. He says, your thoughts are precious to me. They are so massive and so innumerable that they're like the sand on the seashore. David only knows the thoughts of God from what God has told him. He didn't pull them out of the air. God's told David his thoughts, and he knows how great and awesome and massive they are. So we need to get this. We really do need to get this. This book is filled with the thoughts of God, the creator of the universe. That's what we've got here. It's not a normal book. It's not a normal book. And David realizes it here, the very thoughts of the creator of the universe, his thoughts, his desires, his purposes, and he's blown away by the greatness and the magnitude of those thoughts. Yet there's this strange line at the end of verse 18 that almost makes no sense whatsoever. I awake and I am still with you. What does he mean by that? What, why would you say that? It could be a few reasons. One of them might be he's trying to illustrate how many thoughts God has that he falls asleep, even though he doesn't say that here. Some theologians believe that. For me, I feel like I recognize what's going on here from firsthand experience. Let me explain. I have a Kindle reader by my bed. You know what a Kindle is? I've got one of those. By my bed. I only read it when I'm going to bed because it's, got, it's backlit, and so I can read it at night when the lights are out. And so most nights before I fall asleep, what I do is I open it up. It's open perpetually to, there's other books on it, but it's open mainly for the book of Psalms. And I just swipe through and I just explore and find different things that I didn't know before or or see before. And on more than one occasion, reading Psalm 139 or another Psalm, in awe of God's greatness and his splendor, almost to the point of tears, and just overwhelmed by the fact that I'm reading the words of the one who made me. I get tired and I fall asleep. I just fall asleep. It's late in the middle of the living God showing me his greatness. I just fall asleep. Now, what do you think God does then? Does he uh, leave? Does he get tired of my inability to keep focus when I'm looking at him? Does he get tired of the fact that I'm a sinner and all the distractions that are welling up in my heart, some of them wicked, he's tired of that and he's like, I'm just going to book it. I'm tired of this kid. I'll tell you what he does. I awake and stunningly, I am still with him, though I do not deserve it. He is there in my room as though he had never left a second. He has made his home with me. He's not going anywhere. He's not. And I say that because I want you to know there's an entire universe of joy in this book. It looks like a normal book. It is not. It's not. There is a universe of joy in the pages of this book, and you can read it and fall asleep 10,000 times. And I'm going to tell you right now, every time you wake up, he'll still be there, reading, reading for you to open the pages again. 
We're going to do communion here in a few moments. And in communion, we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made the joy we experience when we open this book possibility. And if your faith is in Christ, I'd ask you to take those elements. And what I'd like you to do is fix your hearts on the fact that we have been invited into the greatest joy in the world. The Bible is not a museum piece. It's not an artifact. The Bible is not a painting, even a splendid painting. And it's definitely not a Hallmark card. The Bible is no or normal book. It is, a, it is a window into the real world. It is a window into absolute reality, a window into the heart of God. And we need to see this book as that. We were made to know him. That's why we were made. If you ever wondered what the reason is that you exist, you were made to know the living God. And the way we do that most clearly is through this book. That's how we do it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a, it is a, a um, impossibility for me to adequately describe the greatness of who you are. Everything I've said here is an understatement. I can't even begin to describe your infinite worth and the kind of joy that awaits all of us as we sincerely, with humble hearts, plead with you to show up when we read your word. And my prayer and my hope right now, Father God, is for you to come with your Holy Spirit as we worship, as we take communion, as we fellowship, and even just throughout the rest of this week, Lord, for you to, to put on our hearts such a desire such a hunger for your words, that we would hang on every word you said in this book and that we would fix our eyes, not just on um, learning some new theological fact or understanding some, some story better, Father God, but on penetrating through those facts and coming to face you with the eyes of our hearts, Father God. I pray that you would do that. Transform our hearts Remove distractions from our souls and get us to see the, the value, the infinite value of coming to God and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good through his word. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.